Creed epistemology is a way of taking this uh, study of knowledge out and applying it in the real world, in the street, uh, not literally, but just out of academia. It's a way of having conversations with people uh, to help them critically reflect on the quality of their reasoning through civil conversation. We have very much, as you said, based on the Socratic method, and we're trying to introduce a lot of the latest techniques from uh, psychology and epistemology that we know about today, that Socrates didn't know about, to give us the best chance of helping people reflect on the quality of their reasoning and their arguments and their beliefs in a civil, respectful way, collaboratively, not a debate, not something we're, we're trying to fight. It's a way to be curious together about some idea and uh, through question and answering, as Socrates did, uh, reflect on it. Welcome to the New Flesh Podcast, the podcast you deserve. My name is Ricky Pike, and joining me once again is Jonathan Astro. John, what's on the menu today? Well, a very exciting episode today. Something a little different. We've got a, a very interesting guest, uh, Reed Nicewonder, who is a street epistemologist, Ricky. Epistemologist. What do you think of that? Uh, sounds like a wacky board game. Epistemology, <laughs> the board game. <laughs> that would be it. We can't, well, not to give it away, people, but I think we played that board game today. <laughs> I think we did. Uh, so we actually, everyone's got to listen to this episode because let's get serious. There's there's a culture war going on in there out there going on out there and it's total bullshit. All right. And there's tribal factions and everyone's picked up their scripts and they're saying all this stuff. Forget all of that and let's talk about how we know what we know, why we believe what we believe, and see if we can develop some tools to actually, you know, cut through some of this because it's getting real old, you know? Don't you think? Yes, for sure. And and to have a just a proper conversation. You know, that's not heated, that's not, you're not worried about, you know, you're not looking over your shoulder, thinking, oh, you know, what if I say the wrong thing, you know? I was throughout the entire time we did it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> thinking about, oh, I even name check some of you people listening, all right? Just keep listening to hear that. Anyway, on with the show. Well, we always tell you the truth here at the New Flesh Podcast, and the truth is that we need your help. We need you to leave us a rating or review wherever you listen to the show. We're also on YouTube, so please subscribe to our YouTube channel and leave a comment about a show you liked, or perhaps one that you didn't. Word of mouth is also a very powerful tool, so please tell all of your friends. And finally, to our Uber fans, if you love what we do, you can send us a little cash via the Buy Me A Coffee platform. Any donation here is very much appreciated. Now, on with the show. Reed Nicewonder is the creator and host of Cordial Curiosity, a YouTube channel that posts conversations about a variety of polarised topics. Reed follows a variation of the Socratic method to expose and understand the ways in which everyday people come to have their strongly held beliefs. A graduate from U U UCF uh, Film School, Reed is also a cinephile, which that excites us greatly, uh, and an avid science and tech enthusiast. Reed, welcome to the new flesh. Thank you, John. Appreciate it. Glad to be here. So, Reed. Are you coming to us live from Hollywood right now? I am, I guess. Yeah, technically. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, I know you're not on SNL, but like, this is uh, <laughs> this is interesting because you know, uh, what's it like? What's it like living in? I just would not have after looking at your content. I would not have picked Hollywood for you to live in. Does that surprise you? Um, yeah, probably. Yeah, uh, I do go to some parks here uh, nearby Hollywood, Runyon Canyon, or. Uh, Echo Park, but I also do a lot of stuff at UCLA as well. Now you're you're a, a fairly nuanced guy, and, and and this will be an unnuanced question, but we have to ask: Is is Hollywood as woke as it seems from the outside? What's it like on the ground? Um, it is a woke cesspool. 
uh, and with all the consequences of that uh, very manifest uh, anywhere you walk around. Yes. Wow. Do, do you have any examples of how, how that manifests like just day to day walking around? I'm, you know, I'm fascinated. Yeah. Just walk outside. You see the consequences of the defund the police movement where it's just like a kind of a zombie land, who know, who knows where you're going to run into in terms of, uh, homeless people or mentally unwell people. And it's just trash everywhere, graffiti. And it's, I think the consequences of, especially here in Hollywood, the, the defunding of the police, they have now like little Hollywood safety officers that go around on bicycles, but I don't think this is helping at all. This is just a bandaid on a huge problem that's not getting any better. So I'm out. Uh, well, you mentioned before the recording that, that you're moving. You don't have to tell us where you're moving necessarily if you don't want to, but um, uh, are you, are you getting out for the reasons everyone else seems to be getting out? Uh, I'd probably say so. Yeah. The, the crime and just the general quality of life. So many stores are closed around uh, Hollywood where I live. I used to go to the Arclight Hollywood all the time where the Cinerama Dome is. Incredible place. Is that the once upon a time in Hollywood? Pretty, isn't it? Or is that different? Um, that I think it was in one of the trailers, one of the shots of that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was there when they shot all the Hollywood scenes. I was just out walking around and I saw, oh, it look, kind of looks like the 1970s right now. I wonder what is happening. And then later that night, you know, Quentin Tarantino and Brad Pitt are out there on the street uh, driving around in this really cool car. Uh, it was great. Um, but yeah, the, all, all these businesses are closed that I loved around this area. And especially the movie theater, so it's it's not it's not worth staying for me. Fair enough. That well, is, that is unfortunate. Um, so moving a little closer to your uh, uh, the reason we've gotten you onto this show. Uh, uh, now you seem like a guy who takes his mind uh, and what goes into it quite seriously. Uh, how how do you deal with this? Is my, uh, I saw this on another podcast you, you you did. I thought it was a fascinating topic. How do you personally deal with social media, YouTube, you know, all of this online stuff when it comes to, you know, uh, grappling with deep thinking and deep work and trying to think deeply about things? What, uh, how do you interface with all of those those distractions? Do you struggle? Um, I'm not sure what you mean. Do you mean like the the struggle of Worrying about what you're going to say, like being cancelled, or just worrying about not saying wrong things or embarrassing things. No, actually, that's it. That's it's a. Those are definitely concerns. <laughs> I'm just interested more in mental clutter. Like you know, I, I personally, you know, grapple with YouTube and Twitter. You have to be on Twitter for the pod. I I hate social media. I even hate saying I hate social media because it's it's a pathetic cliche. But honestly. It just, I find, I mean, because you're, you're, you're trying to get to truth, you're trying to get to, as you just, you know, uh, did with my question, you're trying to get to what I'm actually saying. And, you know, if you're engaged on, in all of these online media platforms, social media and whatever, does that uh, interfere with that uh, uh, process? Yeah, I guess I don't really engage in the traditional way with social media. I go out in the real world and meet space and talk to real people face to face and then post that to YouTube and market the YouTube videos on traditional social media sites. And I never reply to anybody on Twitter. I never post a comment on public Facebook newsfeed. I just read my YouTube comments, which are pretty much universally positive. Um, 
and I just have my own niche audience and we have a great time. You're such a strong man. I tell you what, don't you feel this pressure, this downward pressure from, from I'm, I'm talking about everyone in, I'm talking about your friends, I'm talking about your family and these people do have influence over you. Know, you don't tell me you go to these things and just go, I don't care what you think, like for extended family member or loved one, like they, they're all saying, why aren't you on the, you know, the thing, wouldn't it be good if we could just share some pictures or that's how they find the in. Or have you seen this viral video? Did you see mm. this fight that happened in, you know, the New York subway or whatever? I, I do see that, that how social media usually plays out with these viral moments and videos. And I try not to contribute to that in any way and model a way of having conversations with people in the real world. I don't see much value in engaging much, especially on text, with text-based stuff. Clubhouse was an interesting app. Um, Twitter spaces or now X spaces are interesting. Voice communication in real time or on video is, is nice to see. Um, but regular social media is, yeah, probably cancer. Mm. <laughs> I think we should get off, John. <laughs> well, I should get off. I did. I, and I know what you're saying, Reid. I, I certainly don't engage. I don't believe that um, uh, engaging in argument online is, is, uh, at all fruitful, really, in terms of that, this sort of text flame war. Because if you go, think about it, to follow it to a logical conclusion, it'll just it'll, it 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 just won't work. Um, however, uh, but does that mean your you you know even your input like that means you don't watch YouTube videos, you never watch car cash videos, you never you don't watch Fight Haven like Peter Bogosian watches Fight Haven, you know, like you don't do any of that. Or oh yeah, I consume a ton from social media. I'm addicted like everybody else. I, if, if I showed you my whatever, whatever it's called, like the, the phone usage percentages, YouTube would probably be 90%. Uh, there's podcast apps and uh, I scroll through Twitter whenever I'm, I have a free moment. So I'm addicted. It's, it's bad. Do you think that life was better? This is a pathetic question because it's obvious, but I, I, I mean, do you think that things were a little bit better when it wasn't around? In some ways, there's pros and cons. It is interesting how it can work for knowledge production. It accelerates the process of conjecture and criticism. If anybody says anything, you'll get 10 people saying, no, that's wrong. Here's why, um, which probably produces knowledge more quickly and more efficiently. Uh, but who knows what the overall consequences will be. It's all one large human experiment that we're all participating in. <laughs> Well, perhaps we should start digging into uh, street epistemology. Uh, I, I feel like in the current climate, people are unwilling to change their beliefs, even when presented with overwhelming evidence. You know, COVID, transgender issues, crime statistics, you know, take your pick. Do you think that people are less likely to change their ideas or beliefs these days than perhaps in, in, in previous generations? Is, is this a modern phenomenon or has it always been like this, do you think? No, this is a very human thing, being resistant to change, especially resistant to ideologically motivated moral community type beliefs, uh, things that you get a sense of belonging with, things that signal your loyalty to a tribe. Um, people can showcase that on social media and in real life, and it's just a human thing. And there's been ways of dealing with that problem in better and worse ways. And I think straight epistemology is probably the best way. Following on from what you were saying about social media, you know, bringing knowledge much quicker and, and I guess getting to the truth quicker, uh, 
um, technically, I guess. I mean, are you surprised that we're not a little bit more willing to change our ideas when, say, scientific facts get updated quickly or, or everyone, you know, because of our phones, we're, we're plugged into the news cycle straight away. So when, when there is some sort of discovery or some sort of a, I guess I'm thinking more in a science sort of realm that, that people don't change, you know, more quickly. Yeah, we can't know everything about everything. So we offload a lot of our cognitions to culture and institutions. And in our ideal world, any, any kind of scientific institution says something new, we would just believe it because we trust the reliability of the ways that they come to that knowledge. But we find ourselves in a situation where a lot of institutions have been captured and uh, they've shown themselves to be illegitimate and not worthy of our trust. And that causes a problem with uh, us believing things and not sure what to do in life because we use knowledge to solve problems and we need quality knowledge to uh, make progress in society and live our, our best lives. Well, I feel like we need to get some basic things out of the way for the, for the audience to begin with. So maybe we should start with the, um, the, uh, the word and the concept epistemology. Could you tell us what epistemology is? Sure. It's a branch of philosophy about the study of knowledge, um, how we know what we know. That is true. That that's that's that, that accords with what uh, I was told. <laughs> in your in your experience, and this is a bit more of a broad question, as people would be thinking, okay, well, uh, you know, anecdotally, in your experience, how do people know what they know? You're on the streets, you're out there. How do people know what they know? Generally speaking, anecdotally, people come to know what they claim to know through mainly bad ways, uh, just hearing things people believe from people that they think are prestigious and they copy blindly what prestigious people believe in order to fit in uh, with their tribe. That's the default for most humans. Uh, that, and then they, in conversation, show off how much they know about the relevant fields that give them status. Uh, that's how they usually do it. Do you think most people lean lean on Wikipedia or, or just a simple Google search for their uh, their knowledge these days? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Any subject. Well, Wikipedia is kind of going out of fashion now nowadays. It's kind of ChatGPT type of thing. Mm. What is whatever? Put it in ChatGPT and you get sometimes very interesting results, sometimes uh, maybe woke stuff. So now we're on in a whole different world. But yeah, traditionally, Wikipedia is a good first start for people. Well, perhaps you can explain to us what street epistemology is and, and how did you find yourself doing it? Yeah, street epistemology is a way of taking this uh, study of knowledge out and applying it in the real world, in the street, uh, not literally, but just out of academia. It's a way of having conversations with people uh, to help them critically reflect on the quality of their reasoning through civil conversation. We have very much, as you said, based on the Socratic method, and we're trying to introduce a lot of the latest techniques from uh, psychology and epistemology that we know about today that Socrates didn't know about to give us the best chance of helping people reflect on the quality of their reasoning and their arguments and their beliefs in a civil, respectful way, collaboratively, not a debate, not something we're, we're trying to fight. It's a way to be curious together about some idea and uh, through question and, the, question and answering, as Socrates did, uh, reflect on it. Yeah. So, so maybe maybe some practical details. You know, where do you do it? 
what are the rules how how what are the nuts and bolts of 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 your of your style of street epistemology yeah you can do it anywhere where conversation happens even text based which i but i don't really recommend that it's ideal if you can build rapport and have any real human connection at least with voice uh, but ideally face to face or on video um so that includes literally out on the street but i go out to public parks or on university campuses mainly but many people just do it on Discord or um, on Reddit, text threads, uh, Twitter threads, Facebook comments, Facebook private groups, or just in DMs. Um, ideally, it works better privately away from the public eye. Um, yeah, that's where. So, how did you how did you get into street epistemology? Like, do, do you have a background in psychology, or you know, did you just see people doing it and you just got into it? Yeah, my background is being a filmmaker. I moved out here to Los Angeles in 2011, but at the same time, I was editing, a, starting to edit a movie that I shot with a, a friend of mine, and it had a bunch of religious themes and stuff. But I was kind of nominally religious. But through the process of editing that movie, I lost my faith, uh, became an atheist, and this book came out called A Manual for Creating Atheists in 2013 that coined the phrase street epistemology, and that's where it was first applied with religious. And atheist conversations, which is very interesting how then it was moved on from atheism to broader subjects, philosophy and uh, social issues, any kind of sub subject, politics. In 2017, the same author, Peter Bogosian and James Lindsay wrote another book, How to Have Impossible Conversations, which used uh, a lot more techniques and ideas uh, around psychology and philosophy. But during this whole time, there was a community of people who went out and recorded their conversations and posted them on YouTube and got feedback. And the way of having conversation evolved through trial and error rapidly. And we saw what worked, what didn't. And today it's a very powerful tool for uh, helping people reflect. And uh, yeah, it's really great. That's how I got involved. That's awesome. So uh, how... What, 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 I guess what's the what's the difference between say a, a good conversation, the kind of conversations you have on the street, and one that that you would class as, as maybe a bad conversation, one that that ends up in um, may, maybe not an actual fight, but but an argument or or animosity between you know two people. Yeah, I guess you can compare the endings of those conversations most clearly at the end of a debate. Usually, just stop. Someone just gets mad and leaves and just or hangs up uh or says you know f you f off i don't want to see you again um that, that, that's how a lot of that usually happens but with street epistemology many times you hear mm, i never thought about that um thanks for listening to me um you've given me a lot to think about i really appreciate that P appreciate the conversation um yeah i'd be glad to chat more uh, another time that's what we usually hear at the end um I could probably give more differences in different parts of the conversation if you want. I think it's I think it's interesting um, because I, I, you know we I think we need to describe the physical space a little more because I think you you've got the what Steve Pinker would call the burden of knowledge and um, you're you're doing this thing. But I tell you what I I, will, I was at the Let Women Speak rally uh, in Sydney and I walked past a group of. Um, uh, people doing street epistemology there and I think they might have been linked with Peter Bogosian it was some uh, young peoples and um, it looks 
this isn't just like two people sitting on a bench. This is two people. They've got a whiteboard there. There's like not maybe not at this space, but other times there's lines on the ground. There's stuff written. This doesn't look like. You know, I mean, you think you're underselling how um, curious this looks, uh, and and in end, um, can I say uh, alluring? Strangely alluring. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was also there at that Sydney event. That was probably me uh, there at the whiteboard and the lines. I was about. I, did, yeah. I, was, I thought it might have been. I just, I just, I didn't have the confidence to say, "Were you there, Reed?" And did we almost meet like ships in the night? <laughs> we probably did. Yeah, probably. But yeah, what you're describing is this thing called Spectrum Street Epistemology, which I helped develop with Peter Bogosian last summer when he invited me on his reverse Q and A university tour, where he would go to college campuses and not do a Q and A, where he's the professor and people are asking him questions, he would be sitting in the audience uh, and then letting people come up and he would ask them questions. That's how, that was the idea at first. But we did that a few times and it was kind of crappy. It was not interesting. So I helped innovate this new way of, of doing street epistemology inspired by the Jubilee show Spectrum where there's seven lines of tape on the ground with strongly disagree all the way to strongly agree with neutral in the middle and variations in between. And that's just a way to visually see people's confidence and how much they move depending on the questions we're asking and how much they reflect and seeing the consequences of, of our usual SE conversation. You can see it more visually that way. It's more interesting for video, which is what he was doing. He was making, creating videos. And the, this started last year. This is a new form of it. I find it very interesting. We SE is usually one-on-one, but this is with a group. So there is additional problems with making sure we're learning from a bunch of different people or it's more of a mediation than like a helping one person reflect on the quality of their reasoning very rarely even get to the reasoning or the quality of it it's about just merely hearing people out on their reasoning and just seeing if people are on the same page even about words or the the state of things around the topic if you can get that and consensus and common ground on these contentious issues that is itself is a success but one-on-one SE is usually get down to the quality of the reasoning. You can go even further one-on-one, but yeah, Spectrum SE is different, and we're hoping to keeping uh, to do more innovation with that. So yeah, stay tuned for that. Mm. Well, I've actually uh, I've been reading Peter Bogosian's film, uh, which he co-wrote with James Lindsay, "How to Have Difficult Conversations," and uh, I haven't finished it yet. But um, you know, it, it, it you know he, they talk a lot about epistemology in this book uh, as one of the tools to having difficult conversations. And one thing that struck me from the very beginning, they they talk very much about asking questions about you know how did you come to those conclusions? You know where have you found that evidence? Which uh, uh, is I, I think is a good tool to start to build trust with someone. You're not you know you're not challenging their ideas straight away. You're just finding out information about what they believe and how they believe it. Um, can, can you run us through some 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 maybe other techniques that you use out on the street that sort of come under this umbrella of epistemology? I mean, obviously you ask a lot of questions of people. Yeah, sure. Um, I guess I can give you kind of the basic structure of an essay conversation. There's basically seven steps. Um, but even before the first one, there's like a step zero, pre-conversation considerations. This is where you can remind yourself, okay, I'm not here to debate. I have a certain set of attitudes, uh, a mindset, and a set of ethical principles I want to go along with, You know, being charitable, being honest. Uh, I, I care about the well-being of this person. 
that's all you just want to have that mindset going in. But then step one is like just establishing rapport, not in a debate where you're just, you're just going at it, um, you know, hard, straight up. You have to build a lot of rapport so people can be more reflective in a more psychologically safe environment. We use rapport for that. So that's a lot of small talk, getting consent, explaining what you're going to be doing, being sure everybody's on board. Um, but then it really starts with just identifying and clarifying a claim, the next step, getting that very precise and very clear, and uh, moving on to the main reasons for believing the claim and how confident you are uh, that that claim is true, say on a scale from zero to 100, or if we're doing the spectrum game, being on one of the lines. And then after all of that, that takes a long time, just merely understanding their reasons and not merely what they say they uh used to believe whatever they're believing, but actual real reasons, which we have to ask probing questions to clarify all that. Um, and then we can get to the evaluating the epistemology, the quality of their reasoning. That's usually the last step before ending the conversation and uh, reflecting on how you did with the last step. So that's the general structure, and this can contain tons of other techniques uh, for each step. So I can keep going. or can ask me more questions about it. Yeah, well, what's interesting is, you know, uh, I've, I've read Peter's book as well, and that's part of the main reason why I got you on because he's led me down this path of, you know, actually I feel like the the framework for discussions and uh, especially difficult discussions is, isn't something we talk about enough. Do you know what I mean? Like we, we, we just launch into these uh, uh, um, topics and, invariably we're both just picking up a script and i'm you know saying oh you're so woke and the other person saying yeah well you like trump and we're just reading we're just going back and forth of uh, in that way when really we need to be getting under that but ricky said something interesting in his questions like have you found that even i mean you've obviously building rapport is the main thing but i've found when i've tried to do this with even people i know quite well when i've just said oh and where did you um where did you get that from? The very question itself appears, maybe it's my tone of voice, maybe it's whatever, appears hostile to them, um, like as if they're, I'm, I'm saying, oh, where did you read that, you know? Uh, have you, is this something you've come across? Yes, for sure, which is why we, we try not to just jump straight into it. If we do want to challenge someone, especially on a sensitive topic, a contentious issue, there's so much framing you got to do and just preparatory rapport building basically um like I'm, I'm curious about what you just said is it okay if i ask you a few questions about that um uh if you I'm like I already my, yeah, my body's clenched up i'm like oh <laughs> oh no he's gonna say he's gonna say you just read that you read that um on the free press on with barry weiss and you haven't done any research yourself and i'll be like that's true mm -hmm. right, that's where i got it from yeah. And if it gets to that contentious issue, uh, there are techniques to rebuild rapport or recover broken rapport. For, just start talking about people's feelings. Uh, I, I'm, I'm detecting some potential anger here or something like that. Where does that come from? Um, tell me about that. Um, this is why you can't just, talk about the ideas civilly. They've, they've snapped your whiteboard in half and they're like, you know, about <laughs> punching your camera and you say, I'm detecting a little bit of hostility here. <laughs> yeah. Something yeah. going on. 
One 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 thing that that popped out of me that 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 Peter uh, has talked about in the book is is sort of reframing that question about how do you know that and changing it to how do we know that, which is a simple little thing, which I think I I don't know if it if it would help or not in this situation. I mean, again, you need to have that report to, to even ask about how you know something that you know, but just that idea of 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 being part of that. How do we know? I think. Uh, I mean, do you use that technique? Do you say, how do we know that rather than how do you know that? Yeah, this comes from the civility mindset we have, which is a collection of attitudes. And one of the attitudes is a collaborative type attitude, which is where you get all that we language uh, from. It helps it frame it as we're not enemies. We're working together. I may learn something from you. I want to figure this out together. And uh, yeah, it's not combative. And I'm, I'm interested to know how you choose use how you choose topics for 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 your questions. You know, yeah, the topics I usually put a few uh, contentious issues or topics on a whiteboard on my um, on my cart when I go out to a UCLA or a public park. But I also just leave it open for anybody to talk about anything because what I really care about is helping people become better critical thinkers about anything. And any topic can lead down to that conversation uh, because we, we just get down to questions about what is truth? How should we believe? Uh, when What is the criteria for, for, for uh, having certain levels of confidence about certain things? And uh, is it virtuous to be open-minded about any, everything? Are you open-minded? What, what is reality? What does truth mean? How do these relate? Any topic can get down to these very uh, foundational issues. I actually think, you know, to me, those questions are essential and, and I would love us to get to, to those broad questions. But, you know, you're in a very unique position because you've run, you've run, well, actually, how many sessions do you think you've run, just roughly? Over 10,000, probably between 10,000, 20,000, I don't know. <laughs> wow. But, this is, but that's important to know. So you've run around you've run that many sessions. Okay, so you've got actually significant amount of, of ground level data uh, amongst the places that you've been. Uh, you could just give us a, I want to talk more about the uh, the actual process, and we're going to maybe step through it in, in, a, in a bit more of a live way shortly. But just, I think it's important for people to hear from your perspective and your experience, what the most radioactive and divisive questions you've posed so far are and, and whether they come up again and again. Because I think it would be very interesting for, for people to hear that. Yeah, you've probably seen the video where Peter Bogosian gets uh, accosted by a group of people at, at PSU where we had the claim there are only two genders on a whiteboard in the middle of a PSU campus. Yes. I did not expect that to happen. I thought we could have a civil conversation with people around gender and sex and uh, trans. That is the hottest button issue. That and racial issues, um, the general two main topics of wokeness. If you find someone who is quote unquote woke and you ask them about those topics, that is the most radioactive. Uh, because I can talk with religious people all day long. They'll lo they love it. It's not an issue. But what's interesting is, don't you, don't you think some of these people should be 
like you know i would just love if the same outrage uh uh bubbled up with those previous questions like you know imagine people getting as hot about um you know their genitals uh, uh, you know uh, as they do, would about um the meaning of reality like imagine if you were like do you think that uh everything is but a dream within a dream and imagine if the video turned out like those gender videos like people were like screaming from the top saying how dare you this is a dream and someone's like no it's not i think therefore i am like like and everyone's like <laughs> getting really angry <laughs> Yeah, I could see that maybe from like a Wittgenstein or someone about deep philosophical issues, but I rarely see that type of thing. I would not expect. But it's it. but it's a testament yeah. to to how um, we're not even staring at the navel anymore. We're staring at the at the at the penis really, and um, like squarely <laughs> at the penis. <laughs> uh, but um, it's it's just fascinating to me because all of those other questions about um, you know love, death, and God are. Uh, infinitely more terrifying and infinitely more um, uh, weigh, weigh on me a lot more than than these 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 fascinating videos of people saying just arguing about race and gender like it just seems to me um, uh, yeah quite quite interesting yeah I find the ideology the more I look into it it is more about love death and God uh, the more you, you get down to the deepness of it I think it is an evolved form of Marxism and I think it's very Gnostic and Hermetic in, in origin, which is a, a kind of seeing reality as a prison and wanting to do something to get out of the prison and liberate uh, humanity from this prison. And uh, they see these cultural, social roles uh, as a form of prison and liberalism as a system perpetuates it. It keeps it in place. So all of our institutions and liberal values and social norms must be dismantled and deconstructed. And if a philosophy professor is out in the middle of a campus with a sentence that everyone believed 10 years ago, there has to be a mob to chase him out. We, this is the world we find ourselves in. It's very bizarre. Well, that, 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 that video you talk about is quite interesting because uh, Peter is doing the, the street epistemology thing with the lines and, and talking about this particular topic. There are only two genders with these two guys. And all of a sudden, a group of students from way up, like uh, it looks like a six or seven story building from the top are yelling down, you know, you're making us feel unsafe. Like you shouldn't be doing that. Like you guys are transphobes. You know, we're going to come down and disrupt you. And it's just three guys and I, I, I assume, a, you know, a cameraman or something just like having a conversation that, and that got a little, little heated, but I, I wonder, have you ever felt unsafe engaging with people the way you do? I mean, maybe having the camera there is, is, is one way to, to, to temper that a little bit because people don't want to be caught on camera, like roughing you up or anything. But, you know, if the camera's not on and you're doing this, have you ever felt unsafe? Um, not particularly. A couple of times, some you know, sketchy people have sat at my table or walked nearby being in LA. Um, but talking with people, I've never had an issue. I, I usually try to be very chill and calm. You can probably tell by my demeanor, I'm not very threatening. And uh, I rarely let it get to any kind of contentious or heated debate uh, when I'm one-on-one. -on -one. But with Peter out in public, it's we're very much in public space. And there's a lot of people around. We haven't had any safety issues so far yeah so you know you, 
obviously we've, we've and we'll link to some of these in our show notes some of these some of these videos because they're they're absolutely fascinating i mean it's 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 you know a real privilege to watch these these debates happen and to to see this uh uh this this passion and this feeling this belief come like surge and and uh, and sort of take over the video um but in these sorts of cases i mean can you give us have you had any have you had any wins serious wins where you've come across that kind of uh um op- I, I don't have no other word opposition feeling belief whatever and and there's just been a glimmer at the end where the person's you know uh you know uh, you've gotten the sense that they might maybe ask a question or two of themselves later yeah i'd say so um we were in Puerto Rico recently and talked about racial issues and we just asked very simple questions when we made claims like, you know, kindy type claims where the only remedy to past discrimination is present discrimination. Is that fair? Is that, is that, uh, is, it, is that just people would be, would move on the lines, uh, from strongly agree to strongly disagree when the words were clarified like equity or uh, diversity, these words are being used in unorthodox ways. And once we clarify them, the way the woke use them, no one really thinks those are good, good things. And a few clarifying questions can help people reflect uh, and, and move right there in person. But that's not ideally what we should expect people usually change their minds in the privacy of their own homes when they can think about it themselves, ideally with the tools uh, of critical thinking. And uh, it's more that we we give them better ways of thinking or model it, and then they can copy that and apply it to whatever topic we're talking about. And we kind of detach ourselves from any kind of persuasion goals around the topic itself. It's more about showing better ways of coming to knowledge uh, and letting the chips fall wherever they may, wherever that process leads. Well, I think, I think, Reed, we've got to get you to run us through a very basic version of this now. Just, just take, take something, take something from your recent travels and, and, and hit us with it. And that's, and Ricky, and I'm terrified, by the way, I'm terrified that Reed's going to find out how loosely held my beliefs are. (laughs) Uh, But what do you think? Okay. How about the claim? from Billboard Chris, uh, children cannot consent to puberty blockers or something related to that, where children should be allowed to transition, minors should be allowed to take hormones or take elective surgeries or socially transition. Or like I hear, I listened to your podcast with Helen Joyce and uh, Sal Grover. Should there be female only spaces, including um, apps for just females? Is that discriminatory? These are questions I could talk about. Mm. Ricky, that's a, you're looking at the menu. What do you, and you, what, do you, what jumps out at you, you know? Well, let's, let's do the female-only spaces. I mean, that's something we've, we've covered recently with Sal. So. Bathrooms, prisons, sports, anything in particular? Oh, geez. Um, uh, again, I'm looking at the menu. I'm saying prisons, bathrooms, they're all, they're all hot topics. Um, what about um, well? Let's go for it. Bathrooms. Let's 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 go the, the vanilla option. 
you know? Sure. So I guess the claim would be bathrooms should be segregated by sex. Uh, all public bathrooms. Would that be the, a good claim? A good clarified claim? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah. So on a scale from zero to 100 for I, either of you, where would you be on that claim that all public bathrooms should be segregated by sex? You go first, Ricky. So zero being you, you agree they should be segregated. Uh, zero be all like confidence that it, that is false. That is not, that should not happen. Zero, 50 would be an unsure, uh, hundred would be absolutely positive. Yes. Okay, sure. Well, I guess I'd be on, on, you know, close to that hundred mark that they should be segregated by sex. Yeah. 99 or a hundred. Uh, I'd say a hundred. Yeah. hundred. All right. John. Well, look, you know, this is one of those things where I would say I'm close. I'm definitely close to 100, but I'm not willing to concede the whole pot, you know, like, um, but would that, and then I'm, my mind is racing because I'm thinking about all of our, our wonderful guests listening to this episode as well and saying, <laughs> and saying, what do you mean it's not 100? You've betrayed us, John. But, but we always talk about this. We talk about like you, sometimes you agree with someone like 98% and then this 2% you don't agree with them and then you've got to, it's got to be a jihad. You've got to go, right, well, that's it. I've, I've got my AK and you've got to go. So um, I think that I'm just going to leave a little bit of wiggle room because to be honest with you, I'm not sure about anything in life. But 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 don't forsake me. Let's just say it's 90, 98%. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah, so just going meta real quick, that is a social potential influence on our confidence, like not even getting into the reasons. I'm hearing potential fear of ostracization from your audience Definitely. if you don't be committed to this uh, this idea so they're it's holly lawford smith i'm thinking of holly lawford smith she's going to be on twitter straight off this she's going to be saying what's the deal i listen to your thing that two percent that was enough you know you know and then that's it <laughs> yeah <laughs> so next up would be now that we'll have a clarified claim and level of confidence we can get into the reasons um what would be the main thing that gets you to that level of confidence uh, main reason uh, for being there for either of you. Well, I guess I guess for me, it 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 does come down to biology and that that uh, you know, and I'm not saying all men are rapists or are going to sexually assault you, but you know the the majority of sexual assaults on women are perpetrated by men. So I think for that reason alone, I think. You know that's that's one of my big reasons for uh, believing that that these sorts of spaces should be sexually segregated. You know, e even if in the majority of cases nothing nothing would happen, um, but it's that you know it's that small percentage of of men that uh, that do prey on women in vulnerable spaces that that concerns me. Yeah, I'm hearing a kind of protection of women type argument type reason. As John would say, I'm being a white knight here. Mm. Mm. Um, don't worry, I'm suiting up too. I've got my armor on. <laughs> yeah, would that also be your main reason, John? It would. It would definitely. Yeah, I think if you, the main reason. Yeah, I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll have to say yes. I've got some some other ones, but yeah, I think that it 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 is a matter of biology, and it's um, it's it's some of the information that we've we've gotten just from all the you know the women in my life and the, and the women we speak to as well. Things I hadn't considered before. They say stuff like. Um, you know, 
women are aware when when there's a man in the room, that they're aware when um, uh, you know they perceive danger from men in a way that like I thought about this recently, this is a random thing, but like you know this is an old example that people give, but I can go traveling alone. I can I, I've done that. I get get a backpack, put it on my back and I go to the yeah, I can go to mad places at night, you know, overseas and you know as long you know most places and I don't have to worry really. And whereas we I was into Red Femme recently and Jen and and Hannah was saying that they have to come up with all these these workarounds. Like they that there's countries in the world where they have to go and um, they have to bring a friend and they go that most of the bad behaviour that they get in Italy or something or wherever, sorry to you know call out Italy <laughs> but but in places like wherever certain parts of the country that 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 drops significantly when there's another woman with and so it's those sorts of insights that um inform my position but I'll just say yes I agree with Ricky yeah cool if we had to pie chart out all of your reasons for being at your level of confidence how much of that pie chart would that reason take up is it all of it or is there more reasons that get you to, to that confidence. Well, I think I think the biology part of it, just differences in in, in strength, uh, it, it takes up a, a, a large portion of that pie chart. Um, yeah, that would that be a thing that supports the protection of women reason because of the biology of, of males? Yes, I think so. Yeah, is there anything apart from that from biology or the protection of women? Well, to, uh, as a reason to to, to segregate. They um, don't. They don't. Bisexual. They don't like it. They, they, it's it's something that they um, have. Uh, it's my understanding that um, uh, for uh, I don't know. I don't even know what the word to use would be. It's it's. Um, they find it um, unpleasant, uncomfortable, uh, unwanted, and gross. You know what I mean? Like there's a bunch, a range of things that they don't like about men being in their spaces. In 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 bathrooms as unsafe would be the big one that we've just talked about they go well i feel unsafe but then there's all these other reasons which yeah they might take up small things but if we're playing money ball they add up to something quite significant when people they're like well i just you know i just feel um this is not something that uh i'm down with and 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 i guess when you say it out loud like this in black and white because people can always go oh you know Oh, you're uncomfortable, are you? Well, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that you know me existing makes you uncomfortable. Like you know, like so, it's a bit of a, a difficult thing to put into words. But but just on the other side of the coin, there, I think I think there are a large proportion of men who would be uncomfortable going to the bathroom if there are lots of women around as well. Like you know, I'm I'm bladder shy at the best of times. So you mm. know, if, if I have to go to the toilet and there's there's a bunch of women standing around, like mm. you know. Presumably having pillow fights and, you know, just comparing their breasts. Jelly wrestling. All of that, all that sort you know. Of stuff. But, yeah. and if I've, got, if I've got to use the urinal in those sorts of situations, like, you know, I don't think I can do it. Okay. Uh, so I'm hearing another reason of avoiding kind of social awkwardness apart from the safety of women? Definitely. Definitely. Okay. And how would these two reasons compare in terms of weight in your mind? Is the safety of women, like, vastly more of a thing that contributes to your confidence like a hundred to one or two to one well I, for me i think it has to be oh geez he wants to put me num numbers on it see this is we're in the humanities read and frankly because sort of so are you so I, I object to this to this line of questioning however but you I'm want not, to but i'm not going <laughs> to snap it. your whiteboard just yet 
so, <laughs> you know, I just feel like the 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 um, yeah the protection of women thing is a the cost the cost of not caring about that is too is too great, uh, and in that you know the instances where um, it's gone wrong, the way you know where we've been a bit lax is the yeah the cost has been great, and and it co- and so I think to me it would be. It's like a, it, it's got to be a, I don't know, maybe a three-quarter reason of the pie. Three-quarters of the pie chart is like that. Ricky. Yeah, I, I agree with that. You've got to say something to you. You can't just let me, this is, you know, <laughs> hang myself and you just go, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> well, I think, I think maybe all those other reasons, like, like, like the, the discomfort and um, just, I guess, the self-consciousness that, that, that some women feel, it probably takes up that that last quarter of of the pie, uh, but the the safety thing is definitely the larger part, the three quarters. Okay, if I removed that reason, say with like a magic wand, where I could guarantee the safety of all women in bathrooms in perpetuity with my magic wand, so that reason would have no longer any bearing on people in bathrooms. Would that change your confidence about this? And I don't have to think about any practicalities here because, again, the, this can get derailed. Because I'm thinking about it's like those it's like in Singapore, right? They have they've got problems they need to solve, and you can solve anything if you put it, a person in a street with a machine gun standing there and going, "Don't do that thing." And you say, "Oh, well, that problem's taken away," and you go, "Yeah, but it's created another problem." Yeah, it's, say like <laughs> the magic the magic wand puts like a protective force field around women. They can't be touched by any males. Okay. Or they can just be turned invisible if any male is in there, so they can't even be looked at. Uh, if that would happened, would you, this change your confidence about segregating bathrooms? Well, I think I think if they could be invisible, then I guess so. Yeah, because then that takes away that 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 last quarter of the pie, which is the the discomfort and the self consciousness and the just the I guess I guess the ick factor of 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 that for, for women. Okay. Where would your confidence be if that was the case? Ah, uh, it's tricky. It is tricky. Uh, look, I mean, yeah, the, uh, so, I mean, the good news is there's a, there's a solution, you know, like if, if this, if indeed the, you know, we can assure women's safety, well then that's one of the things, that's the, one of the main things where Kieran complained about. And then if there was the, uh, a subsequent to that, if there was uh you know the invisibility thing or whatever, and women were like, "Okay, well, they don't see me, and I mean, it's a bit weird that I'm invisible, and I'm now in this hollow man kind of thing where I've got all this moral conundrum going on." Like that's for another discussion. Um, yeah. Apart from that, um, I don't. Yeah, sure, that would solve the problem absolutely. They just go, and then I would go, "Well, um, then we need to rethink bathrooms." I'd say, "Well, now it's not called single sex, but uh, now it's just called that's the Ali McBeal bathroom." Then finally. We can get the Ali McBeal bathroom where it's just a receptacle and even, but then the only downside to that would be, you know, either they're invisible and we're not invisible or if we're both invisible, then it's just this disgusting receptacle where we all know that what's going on there, which is, this is doing my head in. We, we, but there, there would be a possibility that we'd bump into someone as well if they're invisible. That'd be a bit awkward. Like, yeah. And also in Kimporeal, they're basically ghosts. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Like they weren't even there. So I'm hearing you're. I'm hearing you were both 
very close to 100, 198. If this new reality happened, what number would you be? This is why I left the 2%, Ricky. So you're stitched up. You look like an, <laughs> you look like a total ideologue who just can't just can't let anything in. I let I was like, maybe, maybe we can live another way. And here we go. Now I'm I, I, would, I would my percentage would drop way down. I think in this situation, you, you almost could live without bathrooms. Like you, I mean, maybe because you could essentially go anywhere. Like maybe there's some sort of, maybe there's some sort of portable solution that you have some sort sure. of bag that you can yeah. go in. You just, you know, you do the invisible thing. You can stand behind a tree or in the street. I think even. you, you, like, you've just explained, you've just explained, explained why you are terminally male, by the way, no woman in the world <laughs> Would come up with that <laughs> solution. I'm gonna tell my wife and say, "Oh, Rick thinks that we should all go invisible and we'd all just be able to do it anywhere." <laughs> you know, look in yeah. London. In London, they've got those outdoor portable urinals. No woman oh, came those. up with that. They're not for women, and no woman came up with it. And mm. you have stitched yourself up again. Yep, I just can't. You know, I just can't can't get rid of that that Y chromosome. So I'm hearing from both of you. Your confidences would both reduce significantly if that happened. That we wouldn't, that all bathrooms should be sex segregated. It has to. Yeah, it has to. Yeah, it has to. If if I, if I say no, then then I'm hanging on to something that and, and saying I just because. Yeah, so that that sounds like a real reason for you. Uh, if we took that reason away, then your confidence would drop. So that that confidence is actually that that reason is part of your actual confidence, giving you that confidence to mm. be the to be that for that position. So I just want to check because. It may be complete, completely something else. This may just be a rationalization, but that does sound like something that is the real reason. So great. Mm. Um, so now that I know that that's the real reason, uh, how do we know this is a good reason? It's a what kind of protection for women. I'm hearing a kind of, this, this is a normative claim, a public policy claim, that something should be this way. Uh, how do we judge normative moral claims like this? I'm hearing a protection from harm, I'm hearing a harm kind of morality uh, foundation here uh, and care for women potentially. Are there other ways of thinking about morality? Are there other things that relate to this in terms of thinking about segregating bathrooms morally? Well, the trade-offs uh, you have to, and that's the, that's the argument, is that the argument being made is that uh, the, the rights of people who I identify as women are in conflict with the rights of you know women women and so a kind of that, appeal to liberty i suppose so that that seems to be one of the one of the arguments going on so that's on the other side of the coin people go oh well there's you know what about this group of people but then part of you is like well yes but the um we you know it, we don't know enough of, yet we don't know enough about that condition we're not we're not even allowed to talk about that condition or or research that condition really so we don't know enough about that uh, like to and then it's sort of the tyranny of the minority as well like you know what i mean like where we've got this enormous swathe of of a class of people who we know have less upper body strength we know you know um because let's face it, even though Ricky said, like, you know, he wouldn't want women in there, most guys most of the time are sort of, if it's just one or two women or something and they're not, haven't, you know, they're not screaming and yelling, most guys I, I would imagine would say, oh, I don't care. 
oh, they'd, they'd maybe even say something gross and male like, oh, bring it on, you know, like, like, <laughs> like something, <laughs> something inappropriate. So I feel like... They're, they're know, the ones dreaming of the pillow fights and the jelly wrestling. And the jelly know. wrestling, yeah. So, but um, yeah, what do you, what do you think, Ricky? Well, yeah, I guess it is that trade-off between, you know, a, a, a very small section of the population versus, versus you know, a, a very large section of the population, you know. And I guess if you, if you take an extreme libertarian view, it's like everyone should be able to do whatever they want. But, yeah, I, I just... Um, and that's, that's easy when you've got the, you know... Upper body strength. Upper body strength, when you've got yeah. all of that. And you've got mm. um, not that it's all about that, but it's there's a whole lot of things that come with it. That aggression, that you know, bolt, that disagreeableness, as JP would say. You know, there's yeah. like I don't know. Help us out, Reid. We can also think of it in terms of consequences. If this policy was put in place, how would the world be like? What what things would we expect to happen? Are those things we want to see or avoid? Uh, so we have like some paths in the road of adopting this policy or rejecting it and also are there other policies potentially as an answer to the question i guess how should public bathrooms uh what should public bathrooms look like what should how should that work should there be public bathrooms probably yes now that we know there should be what's the best policy around them one answer to that is they should be segregated by sex are there other answers to that question? They, they, they could be segregated by strength. We have to do some feat of strength to get into one bathroom. <laughs> Mortal Kombat. <laughs> Test your mind. And the you've got to go, yes. you've got to break something to get in there. Or yes. do the dim mark, yep. you know? Yes. Yes. Get in there. But, but the other thing that just occurred to me is some people may feel uncomfortable being invisible. So there may be a whole group <laughs> of people that just for whatever reason maybe they have a phobia maybe it's it's the way they fit that makes no but what feel. about no but the, the, another less i mean your idea is is got something i'm not going to say it's got nothing but some people would say the rule could be maybe what it's been up until now you could slice into that proportion of and this is not great but it is it's taking away some of it you'd say to of trans people you'd say if you pass then you can go in you know what I mean? And use a cubicle or something. Like that's kind of the unspoken rule now, which is if you pass and I don't know and you're not just standing there in the, the swimming change room getting your big business out for all to see, then I, I think that that's a, a, that then at least that takes that proportion down to... But, but how do you know those people who pass aren't then going to go on to show their big business out there, you know, in the, in the change <laughs> rooms? There's no way of knowing that. I don't know. Yeah, I'm hearing a con to one of the options is I'm hearing segregated by conformity to sex-based stereotypes. Oh, geez, when you put it like that. But yes. <laughs> uh, so the, there's we can segregate it by sex, or which is objective, or we can sub segregate it by uh, conforming to the sex-based stereotypes, which are kind of maybe more vague, but somewhat objective. Um, people with skirts go in one space. Mm. Uh, another way of you know that type of thing so now we can think of just those two options we'll stick with those consequences of either policy pros and cons of both what is the main the main pro i'm hearing is sex sex segregation is that it protects women hmm. another 
another con of that, what would you think of, what, what could anyone say is a con to sex segregation? Uh, to sex segregation. Well, I'm, I'm very stuck on this idea that there's a range of people who, um, you know, would say I'm, I'm gender fluid, I'm non-binary, I'm trans, I'm a furry, I'm a kink machine, whatever. And that, that, that group of people would say, this is not fair. I should be able to live my best life, be who I want to be. This is, this is exactly like 1944, you know. So that, that's, I'm imagining what a con would be. Um, present that would be presented. I'm hearing kind of like failure to be represented in public spaces for like yeah, say, people. Well, they would say we don't, we're not allowed to exist, is what they would say. Yeah, you're not allowing me to exist. You're forcing me. I'm not binary right now. You're forcing me to put on a skirt to go into the bathroom. That's like humiliating. It's not representative. It's I'm not allowed to just you know you, I have no dignity, human dignity, all of that. So it'll hurt some people's feelings as a con. <laughs> it will hurt some feelings. <laughs> will. Okay. So, any other pros and cons for the sex segregation? Imagine saying that to them. Imagine saying, so it'll hurt your feelings. And then they, they just go, give me that whiteboard. And they <laughs> mash it over your head. <laughs> I, I think I have a certain kind of rapport with you guys, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Oh, what, so, so what what con would there be for sex segregation? Is that that the that's the yeah, or pro in any others? Well, I guess the, the the pro is you know we've covered that in terms of the the, the safety thing and the avoiding uh, social awkwardness and that yeah. But in terms of a a con, I guess it comes back to the the feelings of of people who claim to be you know a, a sex or a gender that they're you know that they're not biologically. Mm-hmm. And I guess for the the pro for the conforming to gender, uh, conforming to sex based stereotypes, uh, option, a pro would be it, it makes it less likely to hurt people's feelings. Guess so. Yeah. I think it's slightly more in my mind. You know, you probably across it more, but in my mind, it's maybe it, it uh, it's a a uh, a flawed utilitarian option where you'd go, okay, well, if there's ten, if there's a thousand people who are put out by by not being allowed because it's sex based. You go well, you know, there'd be a proportion of those people that we could we could um, you know make happy or please or, or have preferences that we could fulfil if we let them in if they passed. But then that's pretty. That's like a lottery, though, isn't it? That's the, as you say, Ricky. That's a. It's a. It is a lottery. You're saying. You're just saying. Okay, well, you pass. You can get in. But we're not. We don't know anything else. That's right. Yeah, we don't know what what's going on in their mind. Oh, yeah, that's what I meant. Yeah, <laughs> I'm thinking of this very crude moral philosophy type question. Forgive me, but how many female rapes is worth the tears of non-binary people? Like, is it one female rape? One female can be raped to save a million two-hour crying fits for non-binary people? Well, they wouldn't accept this. They'd say, you know, I'm not just going to cry. They'd say, I'll go and kill myself. And therefore, it's my life that you're... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. We could go that far, like suicides. Suicides of trans people and non-binary people. Mm. 
if we got if there were more of those than female rapes or female sexual assaults would that have any effect on the calculus in this policy what a great question yeah that's that is like because this brings up so many like taboos because people say like like there's there's that old well that saying that a lot of people agree with which is that rape is worse than death a lot of people this is a common idea out there right so if you say oh well you know yeah we've got to save like these lives like then you're not buying into that at all geez i Mm. ricky quickly say a number (laughs) no (laughs) (laughs) what a dreadful question what a dreadful uh, question but but the other thing in my mind that 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 doesn't help this decision is that i i feel like that that argument that you know trans people are going to going to you know they're going to commit suicide i i think that's often used very manipulative you know in a manipulative way to 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 win an argument or to change an argument you know i just think i just don't think that that um this is from the guy who wanted a a a feats of strength to get into a toilet (laughs) because you don't think it's empirically true you think they're uh exaggerating is what i'm hearing I, i i do think there's some exaggeration going on there um, you know, no doubt people who suffer gender dysphoria, you know, do commit suicide and, you know, are suffering mentally. Uh, but it's just, it's just hard to know when they make those sorts of claims so flippantly that, that, you know, everyone's just going to go commit suicide if they can't use the bathroom of their choice. I, I don't know. I just can't, can't buy it a hundred percent. Well, you'd have to say, look, if you're being, a, keeping it a hundred, no amount of tears is worth a rate. It's not. Like it's just not like that's if the question is, what are the if we're talking tears? Well, I don't care. You could fill up the ocean with tears, and when we're getting red, it's not it's not worth it. It's not. I don't care if everyone has a sad day, a sad year. That sounds extreme, but like you know, that's different from the the the. If you could tell me em, empirically that we had a number of of people who were, it was like a binary thing. It's like okay, well. You know, if you don't, if you don't, uh, if you follow through with this policy, then literally this amount of people will go home and just kill themselves automatically. Well, then we're talking about a different calculus. Then you, then you have to look at the numbers, I guess, and say, and and just like a hospital behind the scenes would have to do, they'd have to say, hmm, you know, which they do all the time, right? They go, who's a candidate? Who's a candidate for this? Set it to someone who, who, whom I lost. You know what I mean? You're not a candidate you know, for, for this, uh, service. Mm. Yeah. Are, are, what we're talking about here, are these good criteria for judging, uh, the options here, the, basically the amount of harm for certain demographics of people, whether that be rape or suicide or really hurt feelings, depression, crying. These, these seem like the most relevant metrics to judge the quality of the options. What else do we have? I mean, the only other things mm. that people make these decisions on are social clout, um, politics, like how good is it going to make me look or, you know, winning points. So when you take away winning points or you take away money, like if, it's, if there's no tender, like if I'm, you know, going to build Ricky's outdoor, you know, toilet machine or whatever, then, then I've, got a, I've got a stake in this. So when you remove money, self-interest, and all of that, what are we left with? We are, aren't we left with just, you know, um, the preferences and, and, you know, 
the, the yes, the feelings, even though we've been, you know, sort of not taking that, we've been taking a little bit of light of that. But yeah, you do have to look at about harm, physical harm, living and dying and suffering, like physical suffering. What else is there? Okay, great. So these sound like good metrics. What would the metrics need to be to change your mind about this policy? Um, like what would, what would be the, the amount of each of these metrics? Feel free to pick any to make you change your mind about it. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm confused. I feel like we're so deep now. Mm. Like if, if we did a empirical study and found that, however, what, whatever the ratio is, that say, yes, females did get raped or uh, sexually assaulted by voyeurism or some other kind of thing, but it happened at such a low rate compared to population, you know, it's like we do this test and half of it, you know, where there's a, we put one policy in one place and one policy in the other place and we compare the results of both. So some females were raped and had sexual assault, but also in the other place where we did the other one, uh, there's also metrics around non-binary and trans people suicide. If the gender conformity policy was put in place and virtually no females uh, got got raped more than the other policy, but also there was tons of uh, suicides by trans and non-binary people, like these type of things. Is this? I- I think I think I think you would have to show you would have to show a direct correlation, like like opening up bathrooms to, uh, you know, to to people who identify as other genders, that that had an overwhelming, uh, positive influence on on suicide in that community, which which and I don't know whether you, yeah, well. and I don't know whether you could where you could measure that, how you could measure that, like it can't be based on on yeah, f- feelings or wanting to look good or anything it needs to be it needs to be something that we all go oh wow like you know uh there it is we see it you know then again there's so many instances where the data's there and people don't get <laughs> so, yeah, that's true you know, ignoring the practicalities of how we would get that data or test that just what would the results need to be to change your mind or is, is there no result that would change your mind Oh, look, I think I think if we're going to get, I'll pull, I'll throw throw myself out there and say, if we're going to continue to build society and to move forward, you have to give up something. And I'd say, event, and, and at that point, would I would I turn to my ladies and say, okay, all right, like we've got this this irrefutable bulletproof data. It's going to literally save thousands of lives. We know that a hundred percent. We know that. There's no doubt in that. You know, then I would, I would, I would have to, I'd have to push that agenda and say, look, this is a change we could make. Like, what? Like, I'm sorry. Like, I can't be the the zero tolerance guy in this instance if we're talking about the deaths of thousands of people. Mm, yeah, it, it's the less bad option. You would probably say it is the less bad option if I was forced to say that. <laughs> yeah. By read, nice wonder. Yeah. <laughs> hypothetically, 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 yeah. The same for you, Ricky, or no? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think, I, yeah, I think you just have to weigh weigh that up. And if you could show that that thousands of lives are saved, then you would just have to go with that option. You know. Great. Um, I can't think think of anything else to think about. Are there any other things we should 
think about for this question? Anything we missed? Oh, look, I'm terrified right now. It's just like <laughs> this is just like this is. But this is this is why it's so good, you know. But anyway, Reid, no, I can't think of anything else. I've said I've said everything I've got to say. I, I think if we, you know, if we were to take it this far and to think about it this deeply, I think that the easiest solution would just be to have individual lockable bathroom stalls, you know, like just totally redesigning public bathrooms full stop and just everything is individual, you know. Yeah, that would be another answer to the to the question of how should public bathrooms be. Uh, yeah. That's another potential option. To, and we, yeah, we could keep going around the practicalities of that option, maybe get into price or expenses or who knows uh, yeah there's a lot potential other reasons pros and cons for various options mm. yeah, keep, keep it going but uh has your confidence changed about this at all i think i think i'm i'm pretty i, I again I, I stick by my initial i have i've got that i always have a a and partly through going through this process and watching all of, you know, your videos, Peter's videos, reading the book and thinking about how I know what I know, I always have to leave a, 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 a crack in the door to change my mind. Um, you know, there are some things, uh, you know, maybe spiritually, which uh, I won't talk about, uh, you know, one way or the other, that, that I do believe uh, on and, I, and I, wouldn't, I wouldn't bring them into this conversation, you know what I mean? But if we're talking about mm -hmm. these sorts of things, yeah, I, I pretty much stick by what I, what I had to say. I believe, you know, but I, and in that two percent that I left open at the beginning is evidence to my satisfaction and and harm reduction. And then, yeah, sure, it's on. Great, same place, Ricky. I assume. Well, when when John puts it like that, it does sound good to have a little crack open. <laughs> so you know, <laughs> don't be bullied. I might, don't be bullied. I, I, you know, I might be persuaded to move down a percent or two. You know, I think having that opening might be good. Great, awesome. Appreciate the chat. Would love to continue it any time. Thanks. Wow, that was awesome, Reed. Yep, cool. That was so good. Was that different from how you usually talk about, the, or how you hear conversations about this happen? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Sure, it's, yeah. It, it's um. You know, it just it you just didn't rely on any of the uh, the rhetorical crutches that that we usually use in these conversations. These shorthands to immediately turn it into red team, blue team, or or yeah, trying to get go for the clicks or something like. It's the most you know. Um, this is really where the game is being played, and people don't they do not want to play this game. Yeah, yeah, and. You do you have any idea where I would be? I, I assume you know my bias because I work with Peter, but do you have any idea where I would be on that scale? Oh goodness, no, I actually don't. I I, I feel like um, well, I feel like you would be. My guess is that you would be uh, similar. It would be really high on on uh, the claim that they should be sex based uh, sex based. Um, Sex-based discrimination, <laughs> <Segregation. laughs> yeah. uh, sex-based uh, segregation of bathrooms. But I think you would, you know, if we go through, you you would have to leave that uh, the option of if I could give you evidence to your satisfaction that would solve yeah. some of these problems that you you have, then you would change. You wouldn't. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm interested to know what is your your position. Yeah, with Essie, we try not to message as as they say in how to have impossible conversations, giving our own opinion or facts. Uh, 
but if people ask, yeah, feel free to share your own views. And yeah, it would be round 99, you know, exact spot. Mm. But you know, we try to be one more than me. Not, yeah, we try to be not neutral. We, we try to be neutral, but you know, biased towards rationality, but neutral towards the claim. Uh, hopefully I did that. Wow. Now, Reed, how do you know when you've got to the end of your conversation when you're out there on the street? Like, is there a natural end point or, I mean, obviously it might get cut off sometimes because people, they can't, they can't invest the, the time or they need to do something or they go about their day. But, you know, is there, is there naturally a point where you think that's the end? Yeah, I do have a very special form of SE where I go out and talk with strangers. So I'm not really expecting to see them again. So I try to go push it as far as I can and put challenges as, as hard as I can within appropriate record levels. So I just kind of keep going however long they have time for. But if you're doing this with friends or family and um, just go to when there's just a moment of reflection, they pause, they think, you can leave it there and pick it up back up when they can think about something. Um, yeah, that type of thing. Well, uh, Reid, I, I think, um, you know, you've been so generous with your time today and Here's what we'd like to do. We, we, we've got a bunch of other questions we want to ask you, but we've got to get you to come back, do this again if, you, if you're open to that um, because this this is what uh, our audience needs to be doing. This is what we need to be getting out there, you know, just going through this process uh, and, and about these scary topics and putting yourself on the line and learning these things. So um, that's, that's our plan if you're open to that. Awesome. Yeah, we'd love that. Uh, we, we do have a final quick question that we ask all of our uh, guests, and that's we'd like to know what you're reading right now. I'm reading um, Chris Rufo's new book, uh, American Cultural Revolution. <laughs> yes, we're going to read that and try and get Chris on the show. I'm going to see if yeah. I can hunt him down somehow, some way. Um, so, Reid, how, how can people find you online? How can they follow your work? Yeah, just Google Cordial Curiosity. I'll find my YouTube channel. And if they're interested in street epistemology in general, streetepistemology.com. Fantastic. Thanks so thanks so much for an awesome discussion, Reid. No problem. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the New Flesh Podcast. If you like our work, please consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or even writing us a review. It really does help the show reach a wider audience. We'll be back with another episode next week. Until then, long live the New Flesh.